Sometimes it can feel in life like nothing changes, Uh, like the world is stuck uh, on some kind of revolving wheel, Uh, like time keeps on stretching and spinning and stretching and spinning, Uh, and time will never end. I can remember the first time I wore skinny jeans at home. I, um, I was going out with a girl at the time, or kind of, we were in that kind of weird, are we, aren't we going out phase that kind of predates most good relationships. Uh, uh, and she told me in no uncertain terms that if we were ever going to go out, uh, I would need to get a lot cooler. Uh, it might be hard for some of you to believe, uh, but I've not always been this cool. <laughs> if you want to learn how to be this cool, we've got a program for that. It's called the student work. You're welcome to join it. Uh, my, um, uh, the, the girl that I fancied them would then become not my current fiance, but a past relationship. Uh, she, um, <laughs> I, had to get, I had to get that, and I don't want you thinking that Alice was some kind of weird, like, cool psycho. She's not. She's just naturally pretty hip. But, um, but she made it, it this, um, this previous unreasonable girl made it clear uh, to me that she would never go out with me unless I got a lot cooler. So I decided that I should do what uh, any 19, 20-year-old man uh, could do in that situation. I went out and I bought some sweet new shirts and I bought myself a pair of hip, skinny jeans. They looked great. I wore them uh, for a whole term and I felt incredible in my skinny jeans because skinny jeans are, are kind, of, uh, kind of snug and tight, aren't they? When you walk down the street, you feel absolutely incredible in them. Uh, and I wore these skinny jeans for a whole term, and then it uh, got to the, uh, the first morning of the Christmas holidays. Now, families are often great places, but they're not great for those who've undergone a significant fashion overhaul over the course of a term. They can be unforgiving, harsh places. And I remember sitting in my bedroom, looking at my new pair of skinny jeans I absolutely loved, and trying to work out, did I have the courage to wear them down to breakfast? Uh, I was worried that my, uh, my brother was going to make uh, unrelenting, horrible, rude jokes about my new skinny jeans, that my sister would look at me with those kind of distrustful, distasteful eyes that say, you've really not got the legs to wear those, James. Uh, but I decided to wear my skinny jeans down to breakfast. I thought that I was the height of fashion. I thought no one had ever been cooler than me in my sweet new skinny jeans. Uh, and my brother made um, the normal, predictable jokes um, about um, skinny jeans. And um, after, a, after a few minutes, uh, my dad said, James, uh, I used to own a pair of skinny jeans exactly like that. And he, he said to me, uh, back in the day, back when I was younger in the 1920s, uh, you used to go into a shop, same age as Dave, you used to go into a shop uh, and buy a pair of jeans and you would, uh, you would try and get the skinniest ones you could and you would put them on and you would run yourself a really cold bath. And with your jeans on, you would get into the bath Uh, and they would shrink the jeans so they were tight and flush against your calf and your thigh. Uh, and so it would be the perfect fit. Because back in the glory days, they couldn't make jeans fit you properly, so you had to go and sit in cold baths. <laughs> I thought I was the height of fashion. It turns out I was 30 years late to the party that my dad had started. <laughs> Culture and fashion seems like it spins around on a disc on a wheel, and it feels like there's nothing really new. I had a friend at university uh, who, at the start of every term, uh, would go into her parents' wardrobe uh, and she would go past all of the kind of socially acceptable clothes that they now wore uh, and right into the back of it. And uh, she would get to the clothes they'd worn uh, back in the dark days of the 70s and the early 80s, in the days of hideous big jackets and horrible trousers, uh, and she would wear them during university term time. And she looked incredible. 
Fashion spins around and it repeats itself. Culture repeats itself time and time again. Uh, for Alice's birthday a couple of weeks ago, uh, I bought her Bonnevere on vinyl. That demonstrates that I'm not only a thoughtful gift buyer, but I have incredible taste. Uh, and I got her this vinyl um, disc. We haven't got a vinyl player yet, but we will get one. So <laughs> we had, we had, a, we had a discussion in the office uh, a couple of weeks ago about what you get first, because vinyl, vinyl and vinyl players are expensive, aren't they? So what do you go for first? Josh is deciding to save up money so he can get a vinyl player. I'm buying the vinyl first. Anyway, um, so I bought Alice this, uh, this vinyl, Bonnevere vinyl. Uh, and in a time where we've gone through uh, mini discmen and Walkmen and cassette players and MP3 downloads, and, uh, and so now where I can have thousands of music, uh, thousands of songs on my phone at the click of a button, uh, vinyl is back in fashion. Uh, now, any album uh, made by someone worth listening to comes out on CD, MP3, uh, and also beautiful vinyl discs. Culture seems like it just spins around. Uh, like nothing news created, it just reinvents itself. Like things go out of fashion and they're back into fashion and then out of fashion again. Like the jeans get skinny and then flared and then baggy and then go back to your dad's skinnies again. Uh, it feels like the world just consistently repeats itself. Uh, but our passage tells us tonight, it reminds us uh, that time doesn't exist on a spinning wheel. Uh, that time won't keep on repeating itself. It's not stuck on a loop because there's a kingdom that's been established. Uh, there's a kingdom that's been established and we get to see it in sections and glimpses now. Jesus came and established the kingdom. We don't see the fullness of it, but we see piece of it, parts of it and pieces of it. Uh, we get to see glimpses of that kingdom. Uh, and with the glimpses of that kingdom that we see, there's the promise that one day that kingdom will come and be established in full force. And when the kingdom of God comes in full force, that will be the end of time. The passage tonight reminds us that the world isn't existing on some kind of um, spinning time wheel, but time works more like a piece of string, and we're working our way along it. Uh, we've already had uh, millions of years on this planet, uh, burning our way through the string, uh, but there will come a time when that string will stop, when time will finish, and Jesus will return, uh, and the fullness of the kingdom of God will be established on the earth. Uh, we're working away along the string, and one day we will run out of time. Jesus will come back. Uh, we lose sight of that sometimes, don't we? Uh, we lose sight of the reality that Jesus is going to come back. Uh, often on long car journeys, it feels like they will never end, doesn't it? Particularly if you don't know the destination that you're going to. Um, I, I, um, I, had a, I had a lovely day out on Friday. Um, we went uh, with Alice and Josh. We went to Gullen Beach uh, for the morning. And then uh, we decided later on that what we really needed uh, to fill our stomachs uh, was to get burgers. Now, I've, um, I've had burgers in Edinburgh. Uh, and you can get quite a good burger in Edinburgh. But the problem is I know that there is a different way to live. I know there is a, a better solution, a better option. I have been to Bread Meets Bread in Glasgow, and I know now no other burger will fully satisfy my appetites. So we decided that what we needed was burgers, and if we're going to have burgers, we had to drive all the way to Glasgow. Uh, and so <laughs> it's a logical conclusion, isn't it, because the burgers there are really good. Bread Meets Bread opens, uh, in, hopefully in the first week of November, on Lothian Road. Get, you know, put it in it. No one's writing it in their diaries. My, my plan is, if I can mention that often enough, in between now and early November, they're going to invite me to their launch party and give me some kind of, like, gold card that means I get free burgers for life. But we'll see. Anyway, 
So we, we decided we were going to drive to Glasgow, uh, and we got in the car, uh, and we started off on our journey, and Alice was uh, on directions, and uh, she was holding her phone in such a way that I, I couldn't see um, how much further we had to go along the road, and it was um, dark, and then it started to rain, and it got a bit foggy, uh, and often, um, I don't really know the route to Glasgow very well, but I could see none of the landmarks. And at one point, she got the directions wrong, and it, it said we had two miles to our turn-off, and then suddenly we had another 15 on the road. Uh, I'd lost all sense of time and perspective. All I knew was that I was incredibly hungry, and we'd, we'd borrowed Gemma's car. If you've not met Gemma, Gemma's about three foot six, which means that she has the seat right up against the wheel. I was driving the car with my knees. I was achingly hungry. It was dark and rainy, and I couldn't really see uh, any of the landmarks. I lost all sense of time and perspective. Sometimes we, we lose the end goal, and as we lose sight of the end goal, we get so caught up in what's going on in front of it, and being uncomfortable in Gemma's car, being really hungry. Uh, the kids are having a fight at home. Uh, we're trying to get people to school. We're trying to get to work. We're trying to get to university, uh, and we lose sight of the bigger picture. And we lose sight of the reality that one day there will be delicious burgers, that one day there will be the kingdom of God fully established on the world, on this earth. We lose sight. Do you live with the reality that Jesus is returning and is going to establish his kingdom in the front of your mind? Or do you lose sight of that because you don't know the dates, you don't know the place, you don't know exactly how it's going to look, and so it just kind of drifts from your mind? Do you live with the urgency that's meant to create? Our passage today reminds us that there will be an end to all things, and the goodness of his kingdom will be fully established on the earth. Our passage says, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net. It was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. This is how it will be at the end of the age. Do you know that at any moment, Jesus could come back? At any moment, Jesus could come back. I used to hear that like it was some kind of threat. Uh, like, it, uh, like, I was, uh, like I was a naughty child, uh, or maybe like when I was younger, and I might have um, gotten a scrap with my brother or broken something at home, uh, and I knew that I just had to wait for my parents to come in and find out, and then they would punish me. I used to think uh, that all that needed to happen was for God to return, for Jesus to return, and he would come with a, a big checklist of everything that I've done wrong, uh, a big list of all the ways that I've messed up and fallen short, all the things that I did that I shouldn't have done, and that God was going to come and he was going to bring some kind of divine punishment and retribution, uh, a lot worse than being grounded for a month or made to sit uh, on some kind of weird cosmic naughty step, that God was going to come uh, and deliver some kind of punishment to me. How does the thought of Jesus returning make you feel? How does it make you feel right now? Does it make you feel um, anxious? Does it make you feel worried or concerned? Does it make you feel a bit stressed inside? How does it make you think? Does it, does it panic you so you can't really think in straight lines anymore because the idea of Jesus coming uh, is utterly overwhelming to you and, and not in a good way? in a way that brings about um, fear and concern. How does the return of Jesus make you feel? See, I used to think the return of Jesus was a threat. I want to give you a different way of looking at it tonight, because the return of Jesus isn't a threat, but it's a promise. 
The return of Jesus isn't a threat, but it's a promise. You see, because we don't believe in a God who at the end of time is going to come back with a big clipboard and, uh, and punish everyone for all the wrong things that they've done, for all the sins that those of us who believe in Jesus have committed. Uh, Jesus is coming back, um, not, with a, uh, not primarily uh, to punish people, but he's coming back motivated by love. Uh, Jesus is utterly in love with us. Think about the return of Jesus more like uh, a best friend coming home, uh, a best friend that you've not seen for a long time. Uh, I spend a lot of my time uh, waiting at train stations at the moment. Um, Alice lives in Birmingham, uh, and so every couple of weeks, either I'll go there or she'll come back. Uh, when Alice is coming to me, uh, I, kind of, I have a little bench uh, a Waverley station that I sit on, uh, and I wait for Alice to come. And as Alice comes, uh, I get increasingly excited because I know that um, when she comes, we're going to have a really good time. We're going to do lots of good things. Uh, the return of Alice uh, is an overwhelmingly positive experience for me. Uh, does the return of Jesus uh, build in you a level of expectation and excitement? Does it fill you with joy? Because the return of God isn't a threat, it's a promise. Jesus is coming back uh, primarily motivated by love. He's coming back to remove all of the evil, all of the wicked from the world. Uh, he's coming to take away everything that would cause us any pain, any discomfort. He's coming to heal everyone that's sick. Everything that's broken in this world, Jesus is coming to fix. He's coming to heal. He's coming to mend. He's coming to restore. The return of Jesus shouldn't make us feel anxious, but overwhelmed with joy, overwhelmed with uh, hope and excitement for the good things that God wants to establish on this earth. The return of Jesus isn't a threat, but it's a promise. And it's a promise for those of us who know and love Jesus, for those of us uh, who are in a relationship with him. Uh, he's desperate to return because he wants to be in a, a full, perfect relationship with us. Jesus wants to be in a full and perfect relationship with us. So when he comes, it's not a threat, but it's a promise. I think that this parable um, and lots of the parables uh, make it very hard for us to believe uh, in multiple ways to be in a relationship with God. Uh, they make it hard for us to believe uh, in multiple kingdoms, multiple uh, different ways of knowing God. Tom Wright um, puts it this way. He says, the parables cut across the idea that all religions and religious experiences are valid uh, and says that there's a treasure to be plundered and it's yours waiting for the taking. I'll read that again. The parables cut across the idea that all religions and religious experiences are valid uh, and says that there is a treasure, one treasure to be plundered and it's yours waiting for the taking. Uh, Tom Wright is alluding to uh, a parable that we're not touching on in this sermon series. Uh, he's talking about uh, the parable of the pearl. Uh, the story goes that uh, a man was walking in a field one day uh, and he found a pearl. Uh, but not just any pearl, the pearl beyond all price. Uh, the most valuable, precious thing that uh, the world has ever known. Uh, and the man saw this pearl and was so captivated by it, so lost in love and adoration for it, that he buried it. Uh, and he buried it so he could go home and sell all of his possessions. So he could go home and sell uh, everything that he owned, all of his land, his house, everything he owned, uh, so that he could go and make enough money to buy the plot of land. Uh, and he went and he did that. And in sheer joy, he held the pearl. That parable, that story, uh, doesn't suggest that there are lots of different pearls of roughly uh, equal value. Uh, it doesn't say that there are lots of different uh, equally valuable, impressive things. But no, no, there is one pearl. Uh, there's one thing worth giving your life for. Uh, there's one thing uh, that's worth everything that you have. And when you give everything up to have that one thing, it will bring you incredible joy. Uh, there's no suggestion that there are lots of pearls of different shapes and sizes, and they're all roughly equivalent values, and that, that will be fine. Uh, the parable we looked at a couple of weeks ago, the, the parable of the wheat and the weeds, 
Uh, that parable um, doesn't describe lots and lots of different fields with uh, wheat and weeds growing in them, but one field. One field with one lot of wheat and one lot of weeds and one harvest at the end of time. Uh, tonight's parable, uh, the parable of the nets, uh, talks about one boat with one net. Uh, it doesn't say, but don't worry about the catch from this net because 100 meters down the way, uh, there was another boat with another net catching different fish. But there was one boat and one net. And it's a huge net in this parable. It's absolutely colossal, but still just the one net. The parables deal in singular things. Uh, they're not suggesting in any way that there's a, a way to know God, a way to be in relationship with God that isn't through Jesus. If we were doing a, a modern rewrite of these parables, trying to take the spirit of them, we might uh, write it something like this. We might say that uh, there was one group of people over here, uh, and they believed a certain set of things. Uh, and there was another group over here, and they believed uh, another set of things. And one day they had a conversation, uh, and they realized that the things that they believed were in conflict with each other. But they decided that it probably didn't matter, and it would probably work out fine, and that everyone would get to live happily ever after. The Bible isn't a fairy tale. The Bible doesn't promise happily ever after. The Bible doesn't say that everyone everywhere will get to go to heaven. But the Bible does say that for those who know and trust and believe in Jesus, for those who see the pearl and choose to give up everything that they have, they will get to enter into the kingdom of God. They will get to enter into the fullness of relationship that Jesus has for them. Often we want to say that um, everyone's uh, worldview is equally true that it's all uh, equally valid, that um, everyone just has different aspects of the truth, and if like some kind of uh, divine jigsaw puzzle we could put it together, uh, we would have the full picture, the full truth. The Bible gives us no suggestion that that's true. No suggestion whatsoever. Uh, the Bible says there is one truth, and it's found in Jesus. Uh, and that might make us feel uh, a little bit uncomfortable sometimes. That might make us uh, wish that it was some other way. Uh, but that's the way that the Bible tells us it's going to be. Uh, heaven and hell can sound uh, a little bit unfair sometimes, but I was talking with someone and they told me to think about it like this. After we die, the decision that we made on earth is made final. So, for example, if, I, um, if during the course of my life I decide to follow Jesus, uh, whether that's with three minutes to go before I die, uh, or for my whole life I faithfully follow Jesus, uh, I will get to be with Jesus in heaven. If I spend my whole, if I, if I at some point during my life choose to follow Jesus, I will get to be with Jesus in heaven. But if over the course of my life I never choose to be with Jesus, I never choose to enter into a relationship with him, if I reject him, then in heaven my decision to reject God, to reject Jesus becomes final. We just live with the consequence of the decision that we make in this life, in this world. Uh, and the result of that decision is made final. Uh, think about it like a, a parent who has a chocolate bar. A parent has a chocolate bar and they, they say to their child, would you like some chocolate? Uh, and the child by some miracle says, no, I'm good for chocolate, thank you. Uh, and the parent offers the child a chocolate bar the second time and the child says, no, nope, it's fine, I don't want any chocolate, thank you very much. The parent offers it a third time the same response, a fourth time the same response. The fifth time the parent says, okay, that's great, you don't seem like you want any chocolate. If you don't want it, I'll eat it. And the parent says to the child, are you sure you don't want the chocolate? This is your last chance. Uh, and the child says, no, really, I'm all good for chocolate. The parent eats the chocolate bar. The child goes absolutely hysterical because now there's no more chocolate. What? 
The child just rejected at every possible moment, at every conceivable opportunity to have chocolate, and now it's in some way irritated by having to live with the consequences of that decision. Uh, Heaven and hell uh, is just about us living with the consequences of the decision that we make. It's not unfair. I think it's just called being a grown-up and recognizing that the decisions that we make have consequences. Uh, And Jesus longs for everyone to choose him. Uh, God doesn't delight in people not being in relationship with him. He was so intent that everyone should come to know him that he sent, that he came down to earth and died in our place so that everyone would know him. But the reality is, is that we have to live with the consequences of our decision. Uh, alongside being clear that there's a heaven and a hell, a place where God is and a place where God isn't, uh, our passage tonight also tells us that it's not our place to judge. It says, this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. Uh, Having said that there's a heaven and a hell and that the only way to get into heaven is through a relationship with Jesus, the passage then says, oh, but it's not your decision to make. Uh, In other words, uh, I can't make a judgment call on your relationship with Jesus. I can't stand here from the stage uh, and go, heaven, 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 unclear, hell. I can't make those kind of, uh, that pointing wasn't deliberate, it's not prophetic. I, um, I, can't, um, I can't make those kind of judgment calls. I've not been put in the position to make uh, decisions about your relationship with Jesus. Uh, and you can't do that for me either. Uh, the parable says that we are fish, not fishermen. Uh, A fish knows it's a fish, right? Uh, But a fish can't know if another fish is a good fish or a bad fish. That's the fisherman's job. It's not our place to stand in judgment over people uh, and try and decide whether their relationship with Jesus is in some way valid or not. What we're called to do as the church, as the body of believers, uh, is to pull each other deeper into that relationship with Jesus. Uh, We're called uh, to encourage each other to love him more. Not because we're passing judgment on their relationship with God, but because that's what the church is called to do. Uh, An understanding of heaven and hell uh, isn't meant to make us uh, judgmental. It's not meant to make us passive and lean back, but instead it's meant to give us a sense of urgency. It's meant to remind us that people's relationship with God is incredibly important. Knowing that um, the world will one day come to an end, that that since Jesus came, we're living towards the end of the world, right? That's meant to give us a a sense of urgency. Uh, We don't know when Jesus will come back. He could come back in a hundred years' time. Jesus could come back in 20 years' time, in two years' time. Jesus could come back uh, in two weeks' time. This could be our last Sunday. That's not meant to sound um, overblown or melodramatic, but the reality is, is that we just don't know. We just don't know when Jesus is coming back, and that's a promise, not a threat, right? Because Jesus loves us completely, and he wants to be in relationship with us, and that means good things for us, but that's also meant to give us a kick at the backside and a sense of urgency, It's meant to send us out into the world so that people can be in relationship with him. Uh, If you knew that Jesus was coming back uh, before the end of the week, you might live differently this week. Uh, You might be more determined to tell people about him. Uh, You might be more determined to see his kingdom established on this earth. It would change the way that you lived, wouldn't it? Uh, We're called to live as though that's true for us now. Not to presume that Jesus will come back at some time, at some point after we die, but to presume that right now Jesus might come back. And so because we love him, we want people to be in relationship with him, uh, we need to go and share him with the world. Uh, Our our passage tonight closes with these words. It says, He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. 
like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as olds. I don't think that passage, um, those last few verses, is designed to tell us how to share our faith. But I think it gives us uh, an interesting um, model and framework and understanding for it. Uh, Our role isn't to make judgments on people's faith, on their beliefs, but it is to bring up treasures out of our storeroom. Uh, new and old treasures, things that we've seen God do years ago, testimonies of things that God did years ago, but also new things, the things that God's saying to us now, uh, allowing that to change the way that we live now, Uh, expecting God to do things in us, uh, both from a long time ago, but also right now in the present moment, and to not be afraid to talk about those. Uh, It says, bring out the treasures. Uh, There's a sense that the things that uh, God has done in me, the things that God's teaching me, the truths that I have stored up inside me, uh, weren't designed to be left in a locked room, but brought out to the world. Does an understanding of heaven and hell, uh, and recognizing that one day Jesus is going to come back, give you the urgency that you need to bring the treasures out of the storeroom, uh, to bring the new and the old things out so that people can hear the good news of Jesus and be in relationship with him? The passage tonight reminds us that there is an end to all things, that time isn't stuck on some kind of loop, that there will be an end, and that end is when Jesus comes, the coming of the kingdom of God, and it's not a threat, but it's a promise, uh, because Jesus is overwhelmingly in love with you, and he wants to be uh, in a perfect relationship with you, and if we know him and we love him, uh, there is nothing to be worried or anxious about. But alongside knowing that Jesus is coming back and that being a brilliant promise, it should also give us the energy and the impetus to go out, to bring out the treasures locked up in our storeroom, not to leave them hidden away on some kind of shelf to grow dusty, but to bring them out for people to see, to bring them out so that other people can come to know Jesus in a saving relationship. Amen.